Today's scripture will be from Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 45. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they, they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The la and the last day of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship together. Appreciate those who have led us in our worship this morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew, the 12th chapter. Appreciate Luke reading that for us. We're going to actually pick up where we left off last week in Matthew, chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse number 33 and work our way down to verse number 45. If you have your copy of God's Word, Love for you to get it out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 45. If you had the chance to be with us last week, then perhaps you remember we spent some time thinking about what many people call the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've had a lot of people ask me about this passage, had a lot of people ask me about this specific topic as we've walked through a series of lessons on the Holy Spirit, so I thought it would be good for us to spend some time talking about it together. As we began in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, we saw the Pharisees' problem. Jesus, in verse number 22, cast out a demon from an individual, causing him to be both blind and mute. The Pharisees, watching this miracle, couldn't deny that the miracle actually took place. What they could debate about, though, is the source, the power, the authority behind the miracle. And so in verse number 24, they made an accusation against Jesus that this man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They wanted to destroy Jesus' popularity. They wanted to destroy Jesus' reputation among the common people. And so they make an accusation 
that's false, of course, but yet an accusation that's trying to pull the people away from him. The only way that he's able to cast out demons is by the power of Satan. How does Jesus respond to that? Last week, we saw Jesus respond to that by saying a couple of different things. First, he talks about the Pharisees' irrationality. Like Abraham Lincoln said, remember we said Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with these words, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus says if Satan is casting out Satan, then his kingdom cannot stand. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be laid waste. The Pharisees' claim that they made in verse 24 is not a logical or rational claim. He points out their hypocrisy in verse number 27. He asked them the question, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? They had one standard for Jesus and one standard for themselves. Jesus talks about his true source of empowerment, which is not Beelzebul, the prince of demons. His true source of empowerment was the Holy Spirit in verse 28. He casted out that demon by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, Jesus talks about his superiority to Satan. Jesus is the one entering into the strong man's house, binding the strong man and taking everything that he owns. Jesus rejects neutrality in verse 30. If you're not with me, then you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, then you are scattering. Everybody in this conversation, everybody in this situation had to make a decision. Is Jesus empowered by the prince of demons or is he empowered by the Holy Spirit of God? They could not remain neutral, which leads to his warning of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where Jesus says if anyone blasphemes the Spirit, he's not going to be forgiven. He's not going to be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of in this passage. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You go back to verse number 24, they were speaking evil against the Holy Spirit by crediting His power to Satan. As long as they continued to live with that mindset, as long as they continued to go down that path, they could never access forgiveness from God. It's not that what many people call the unforgivable sin is truly unforgivable. It's that if they continue down that path of rejection, if they continue with that mindset of intentional and willful rejection, then they will never be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. If they turn away from that mindset though, if they decide to repent and turn to Jesus, they could be forgiven. So think about the question, what would that take? What would it take for the Pharisees to turn from this blasphemous attitude and mindset that they have in verse number 24 to turn to Jesus and subsequently be forgiven. What would that look like? What would repentance for them entail? I believe that's what Jesus talks about as we walk through this passage beginning in Matthew 12 and verse 33 all the way down to verse 45. In my experience, when we talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we end at verse number 32. That's where we end the study. That's where we end the sermon. That's where we end the discussion. And when we do that, we're failing to recognize that Jesus continues to speak to the same people about the same topic. When you keep reading into verses 33 through 45, Jesus talks about the remedy for the unforgivable sin. If the Pharisees wanted to repent, if they wanted to turn away from this blasphemous mindset and attitude that they have, then here are some things that they need to do. Jesus is going to talk to them about the solution to their problem. 
It's kind of like the lady who called a psychologist. That looks like a psychologist, right? At least that's what Google says a psychologist looks like. There's a lady who lived in a duplex that called a psychologist with a problem. She said, the person who lives in the other side of this duplex is apparently mentally ill. He thinks that he's in an opera and he's constantly singing at the top of his lungs all the time. He doesn't stop 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Is there anything that you can do about this? The psychologist said, give me his phone number. I'll I'll give him a call. I'll try to talk to him. About a week later, she noticed that the singing stopped. So she called the psychologist back and said, hey, did... Did you point out his delusion to him? Did you tell him that he actually wasn't in an opera? He said, no, that's not what I did at all. I just told him that he has a lesser role in the opera. That's the solution that he came up with, right? Tell him he had a lesser role, not going to sing as loud. And I imagine she didn't have a problem with that. You look at this passage in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 45. What is the solution? What is the remedy to the unforgivable sin? If we choose to walk in the Pharisees' direction, if we choose to do what the Pharisees did, if we choose to go down this path of intentionally rejecting the Holy Spirit of God, blaspheming Him, speaking evil against Him, in the way that we choose to live on a daily basis, how can we remedy that? How can we step out of a situation where there is no forgiveness, either in this age or in the age to come, into a situation where we experience the sweet embrace of Jesus' forgiveness. We're going to look at four ideas in this passage and then the lesson's going to be yours. Number one, if we're going to remedy the unforgivable sin, Jesus says that we have to change our hearts. That's what we find in chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus uses an illustration from nature like He did in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when it comes to discerning false prophets, you're going to know them by their fruits. Here He uses the illustration of a tree and the fruit that that tree produces. Now, I'm no expert when it comes to trees. But I can figure this one out. You probably can too. If you have a bad tree, what kind of fruit is that tree going to produce? Well, if it produces any fruit at all, if it's a bad tree, it's going to produce bad fruit. Isn't it? What about a good tree? What if you have a good tree? What kind of fruit is it going to produce? It's going to produce good fruit. Common sense says that, right? A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. A good tree is going to produce good fruit. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you have a decision to make. Either make the tree and its fruit good, or make the tree and its fruit bad. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, you continue into verse 34. Jesus tells us exactly what He means by that. The Pharisees are blaspheming They're speaking evil against the Holy Spirit of God. Where did those blasphemous words come from? Where did that false accusation back in verse 24 that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, where did that originate? Where did that form? You look in verse 34, Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our words come from our hearts. What we say comes from who we really are on the inside. If you have a good tree, then the fruit's going to be good. If you have a good heart, then your words are going to be good. If you have a bad tree, then the fruit's going to be bad. If you have a bad, evil heart, then your words are going to be evil and bad. And that's that's where the Pharisees were. 
That's what they were struggling with. Jesus looks at them to say, you're not even capable of speaking good about me. You're not capable of speaking good about the Holy Spirit because your hearts are evil. What did they need to do? Look at that first point. They needed to change their hearts. If their hearts were evil, antagonistic towards Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they needed to change their hearts in order to be in the right relationship with God. It just so happens what's true with trees is also true with people. You have a good tree that's going to produce good fruit. Jesus says in the same way, verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure in his heart is going to bring forth good things. You have a bad tree and it produces bad fruit. The same is true with people in verse 35. The evil person out of his evil treasure in his heart is going to bring forth evil. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Jesus is asking them, which one are you going to be? What kind of treasure are you going to have in your heart? And that's going to determine the kind of life that you're going to live. If they change their hearts, they would change their lives. If they change their hearts, they would change their words, change their actions, especially when it comes to Jesus. Is this a serious conversation? Does this have serious results and consequences? You look at verses 36 and 37, Jesus says that it does. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. The Pharisees, we've said both today and last week, they were intentionally and willfully speaking evil against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says even every careless word that you speak, you're going to have to give an account for on the day of judgment because the words that we speak reveal our character. The words that we speak reveal who we really are on the inside. That's why this is a heaven or hell discussion in verse 37. That's why this is either justification or condemnation in verse 37. Make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. If they wanted to step out of a place where they have no forgiveness in this age or the age to come, Jesus says you need to change your hearts. Because when you change your hearts, you're going to change everything else. And the same is true for us, isn't it? If we want to remedy the unforgivable sin and step into the forgiveness of God, we have to change our hearts. We have to change the way that we think. So often, we only think about changing our external behavior. So often, we only think about changing what we do. It's surface level. We only think about changing what we say. And the Bible tells us, Jesus instructs us, that we need to go deeper than that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we have a decision to make. We can either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You can live as a good person who has a good treasure, who brings forth good things, or you can live as an evil person who has an evil treasure who's going to bring forth evil things. If we side with the good, Jesus says the result's going to be justification. What a blessing that is. But if we side with the evil, the result's going to be condemnation. Something that we want to stay away from. If we want to step out of a place where there's no forgiveness, we have to change our hearts. And when we change our hearts, we'll change everything else about us. Number two, Jesus says to the Pharisees in 38-40 through 40, that if they want to remedy the unforgivable sin, they have to accept His sign. Jesus has been speaking to them since verse 25. It's been a continuous dialogue all the way down to verse number 38. How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' words? 
oh, we're sorry. We're so thankful that you pointed out our wrong to us and we want to change. We want forgiveness. We want to be in the right relationship with God. Would you please show us how to do that? That's not what they did at all. They look at Jesus in verse 38 to say, Teacher, we want a sign from you. What have they already seen? Is that not enough? Back in verse 22, when Jesus casted out a demon from an individual who was both blind and mute, and then he was able to see and able to speak after Jesus interacted with him for just a few moments, was that not enough for them? Oh no, they're, they're asking for something bigger. They're asking for maybe one of the signs that they read about in the Old Testament. God sending fire from heaven or causing the sun to stand still. Jesus responds to them by saying they're an evil and adulterous generation. They're morally corrupt. They're spiritually adulterous. They're cheating on God in this inappropriate request for a sign. Jesus says you're not going to get a sign. You're not going to receive a sign from me except for one. He calls it the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is the sign of the prophet Jonah? He explains it, doesn't he? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Are you familiar with the story of Jonah? Going back to the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, God comes to Jonah, who is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and tells him, I want you to go preach against the city of Nineveh. That, that, that was a pagan city. A part of Israel's enemy, Assyria at the time. Go out and call against their wickedness. What does Jonah do? Oh, he, he runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat and sails to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction of where Nineveh was actually located. God hurls a great storm upon the sea. To calm that storm, they throw Jonah overboard into the waters of the sea. To save Jonah from drowning, in Jonah 1 and verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus says, you're not going to get a sign from me except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You know what Jesus is talking about, don't you? Jesus is pointing towards something that's going to happen in the near future. In His death, His burial, and His resurrection on the third day. Can you imagine a sign greater than that? Do you imagine, can you imagine something Jesus could do that would be greater than His death, burial, and resurrection? He says, that's the only sign that you're going to receive from Me. And it's the sign that they must accept. It's the sign that they must receive. The sign of the prophet Jonah if they're going to be forgiven and step out of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What about us? If we're going to remedy the unforgivable sin, then we have to accept Jesus' sign. How often through the week do you spend time thinking about the fact that Jesus died for you? Jesus was buried for you. Jesus rose conquering death on the third day for you, for me, for our salvation. Forgiveness cannot be found outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness does not come from being a good person. Reconciliation with God does not come from keeping a list of rules. Justification, being in the right relationship with the Father, 
it doesn't come from our own merit. It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we will ever deserve. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and justification are only possible through the sign of the prophet Jonah. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what clears away our sin. It's what makes us victorious over death. It's how we're able to conquer the guilt that we feel about the sins that we've committed in the past. It's the sign that we must accept. Just like the Pharisees, if we don't accept the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus into our lives and allow that to define us, then we can never be forgiven. There's no forgiveness outside of the sign of the prophet Jonah. Number three, the remedy for the unforgivable sin is accepting Jesus' greatness. We sang about this just a few moments ago, didn't we? We sang about how great is our God, and then we followed up that song by singing about how we're standing in awe of how great our God actually is. If we're going to remedy the unforgivable sin, then we have to accept how great Jesus is into our hearts and into our lives. Jesus continues telling the story of Jonah. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. The fish vomits him out on the dry land and God gives him a second chance. Aren't you thankful for that? We serve a God who is willing to give second chances. He looks at Jonah just like he did in chapter 1, in chapter 3 and verse 1, and again says to him, go to the city of Nineveh, call out against their wickedness because it's risen up before me. And this time Jonah does it. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 4, he preaches a sermon that is five words in the original Hebrew. How would you like to hear a sermon that's just five words long? That's the sermon that he preaches here. And you notice the response of it in verse number 5, that the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah preaches a five-word message and the entire city places their faith in God and repents of their sin, mourning over their sin. Watch what Jesus says in 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Jesus says the people of Nineveh who are Gentiles living in a pagan city, they're going to rise up on the judgment day and condemn this evil and adulterous generation of Israelites. Why is that? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They didn't ask for a sign. Jonah comes in and preaches a five-word message and the entire city believes in, not Jonah, but believes in God, repents of their sin, mourns over their sin. But then look at the last few words of verse 41. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You have an entire Gentile pagan city repenting of their sin, repenting at the preaching of Jonah. Somebody greater than Jonah was standing right in front of them. And what did they do with him? Oh, they said that he's empowered by Satan. They inappropriately asked for more signs. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They rejected him to his face. Jesus is inviting the Pharisees standing around him to recognize how great he actually is. Jonah comes in and preaches a sermon and everybody in Nineveh repents. Somebody greater than Jonah is here and you're not responding that way. He says, that's why you're going to be condemned on the day of judgment. He uses a second story from the Old Testament to make the very same point. In uh, verse 42, he talks about the queen of the south. In 1 Kings 10 and verse 1, it's the queen of Sheba. When she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. 
Again, watch the same thought in verse 42. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Again, you have another Gentile, a Gentile woman, who's going to condemn this generation of Israelites, God's chosen people. Why? Oh, she traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You do the math on this, you look at the distance, she travels about 1,200 miles just to test Solomon's wisdom with hard questions. But again, you have to underline it at the end of verse 42. Something greater than Solomon is here. The Queen of Sheba travels 1,200 miles, a Gentile, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, comes from the ends of the earth. Somebody greater than Solomon is standing right in front of you. And you're not listening. You're not responding. Instead, you're rejecting. He says that's why you're going to be condemned on the judgment day. That's why there's going to be no forgiveness either in this age or the age to come. Jesus says, because you're not recognizing my greatness. If we're going to remedy the unforgivable sin, we have to recognize how great Jesus actually is. Reminds me of a story about Winston Churchill. He was talking to one of his servants and said, I want you to know that about an hour ago, you were really rude to me. The servant looked at him and said, I was rude to you because you were rude to me first. Winston Churchill said, yeah, I was rude to you. But there's a difference between you and me. I'm great and you're not. That was his excuse, I guess, to be mean to everybody, to be rude to everybody because he was great and everybody else wasn't. We look in Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42, and we find someone who is actually great. And that's an understatement, isn't it? When we look at Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42, we see somebody who is the greatest. What do you consider to be great in your life? Maybe it's a person, relationship, situation, job, material item, whatever it is. What do you consider to be great in your life? Jesus stands in front of you to say, I'm greater. Somebody greater than that is standing in front of you. The question we have to answer is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to accept the greatness of Jesus into our lives or are we going to reject it? Unlike Winston Churchill, Jesus doesn't use His greatness to be rude to people or to abuse people. Jesus uses His greatness to raise people up. Jesus uses His greatness, the name that's above every name, the name at which every person is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He's Lord to the glory of the Father. He uses His greatness for our salvation. The question that we have to answer is, are we going to accept it or are we going to reject it? If we reject the greatness of Jesus in our hearts, then we place ourselves in a position where there will be no forgiveness either in this age or in the age to come. And then finally, number four, the remedy for the unforgivable sin. You have to remove what is bad and you have to replace it with what's good. In verses 43 through 45, Jesus tells what we might call a pretty odd story. A pretty odd parable. In step, in verse 22, He casted out a demon from a demon-oppressed individual who is both blind and mute. Perhaps He's playing off of that here in verse 43 when he talks about an unclean spirit who's cast out from a person. And that unclean spirit goes through waterless places, dry, deserted, arid places, looking for a place to settle down and is not able to find a place. And so the light bulb comes on, the, the unclean spirit says, I'll just go back to the person that I was originally in. I'll go back to the house that I was originally living within. And that's what 
He does. He goes back to the person, enters within the person, and finds the person empty. When the evil spirit was removed, that free space wasn't occupied with anything else. And so when the spirit comes back, it's all cleaned up, it's tidy, it's neat, everything's in its place, but it's empty. And so it's not just that he takes up residence there once again, but he goes and finds seven spirits who are more evil than himself and takes up residence there. Jesus says the last state has become worse than the first. That's a pretty, that's a pretty odd story. You, you don't find a story like that in every page of the Bible. You don't find a parable like that in every page of the Scriptures. What does Jesus mean by that? Again, watch who he's addressing. Talking to the Pharisees who are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're intentionally rejecting the Holy Spirit. They have an attitude, a mindset of rejection. Jesus says if you want to be forgiven, if you want to make your life right with God, you have to remove the evil. There's no way around that. And there's no shortcut for that. You have to remove your evil thinking. You have to remove your antagonism that you have toward me in your heart. But then there's another essential step that they have to take. Remove the evil and replace it with good. Remove your antagonism towards me and replace it with a love for me. If they just remove the evil and don't replace it with anything, they're going to remain empty and perhaps that evil will come back. And when the evil comes back, the second state's going to be worse than the first. And so he says, when you remove the bad, you have to replace it with good if you want to place yourself in the forgiveness of God. If we want to remedy the unforgivable sin, the same is true. Remove the bad and replace it with good. Have you ever struggled to kick sin to the curb? Have you ever had a sin in your life that you struggled with day after day and you were trying all you could to get rid of it and it just kept coming back? Maybe you did get rid of it for a little while. A couple weeks, maybe a couple months, but then it comes back and when it comes back, it comes with a vengeance. When it comes back, it's oftentimes worse than it was originally, harder to get rid of than it was originally, harder to deal with than it was originally. Have you ever been there? Perhaps the reason we stay in that terrible cycle is because we're missing an essential step. When we remove what's evil in our lives, we can't remain empty and allow the evil to come back. When we remove the evil, we have to replace it with good. You have some kind of sin in your life right now that you're struggling with? Jesus calls on you to remove what's unclean, to remove what is sinful, and to replace it with the greatest good. A love for Him and all of the blessings that flow from His cross. We can't be like the Pharisees, can we? We can't continue down a path of intentional rejection, intentionally, willfully rejecting the Holy Spirit. If we do that, we put ourselves in a position, listen, there will be no forgiveness. If you continue down that path, there will be no forgiveness either in this age or in the age to come. But like we said at the end of our study last week, we have the opportunity to make a different choice. And here Jesus tells us how to make a different choice. We have to change our hearts. Accept Jesus' sign. Accept His greatness into our lives. We have to remove what's bad and we have to replace it with what is good. Now that might look really easy on paper. As you look at that up on the screen, maybe those ideas are really easy to read through and really easy to think about. The question is, are we willing to do what's necessary to make them a part of our lives? 
What about you this next week? What do you need to do in the next week to change your heart? What do you need to do in the next week to stand with both feet in the, the sign of the prophet Jonah, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do you need to do in the next week to recognize that Jesus is greater than anything else or anybody in your life? What do you need to do this week to remove what's evil and replace it with what is good? We can help you to do that this morning. We'd love to. As together we stand and sing. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the